where you are on life's journey, you are welcome here. No matter who you are or where you are on life's journey, you are welcome here. And you are wanted and you are valued here. We have stories of faith that connect us, whether you're in Connecticut, Colorado, the United States, or Europe, or anywhere in the world. I had mentioned in Happenings that we would begin with just a tiny bit of Bible trivia because I think we're moving into um, a series that might be a little challenging. Uh, There are some really challenging messages in the prophets, and uh, so this is just a way to ease into that. So in in the Bible, in the Hebrew Bible, there are 12 recognized minor prophets. And so the first question is, who was the earliest in terms of writing of those 12 prophets? I didn't say it was going to be easy. I mean, come on, it's trivia. (laughs) Bible for 800. (laughs) Who'd you say? I can't hear you, but that's not the right answer. Oh, <laughs> Nehemiah. I knew it wasn't the right answer, too many syllables. If you read Happenings, you might know who it is. I'm pretty transparent. Amos, yeah, Amos. Um, and Amos was from the eighth century before the Common Era. The Common Era is defined as sort of the era when Jesus was born, which isn't it's, I guess it's just something that the scholars accept as common, uh, even though it's very clearly Christian biased. Um, which prophet was the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King quoting when he said, let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream? Come on. Amos, yeah. You're catching on, you see? Um, While not specifically named after a prophet, what brand with a prophet's name is best known for their chocolate chip cookies? Famous Amos. Yeah, that's all I got, though. That's it. Um, Good job. So let's, let's talk a little bit about Amos, now that you know some things about him. Um, the book of Amos is nine chapters in total. And remember, maybe if you've been following us for the last few weeks, there are five different characteristics of a prophet. Uh, Seems like prophets don't hold those five characteristics in equal measure. And so when it comes to Amos, there are only five verses, the last five verses out of nine chapters, where there are words of hope for future restoration. Amos is not a prophet of comfort. In verse 2 of the first chapter, it starts like this. He, Amos, said, the Lord roars from Zion and thunders from Jerusalem. So maybe you're thinking, in like a lion, out like a lamb. Barely. Mostly lion. Mostly thunder. Makes you want to read it, doesn't it? Yeah, me too. 
And so because of this, I think it's fair to say it's easy to miss the message given how Amos delivers it and characterizes God because God is a central character in these prophecies. God is characterized as a supreme controller of conditions and circumstances that tries to change behavior. In other words, there are threats that are given. If you don't change, this is going to happen. Threats of weather or of success of a harvest, threats of locust or of fire or of death, and even death of, I'm looking around the room, death of um, offspring. It's not the kind of God you'd want to worship and praise. Each one of those conditions we now sort of look at from a scientific perspective are seemingly random and not controlled by God. But this was part of the prophet's message to try to persuade. You know, there's, an, there's a teaching that says, um, don't be afraid of everything, but be afraid of something. You know, there should be something that sort of calls us to account and calls us to consciousness, consciousness. So I think Amos was hoping that people were afraid of God. And using that as a motivator to change. It was in a teacher's lounge when I first heard the expression, did you go all Amos on him? That was for the class that was misbehaving. Did you give it to them? Is sort of what it means. It's not the gentle approach. So what was the issue? I mean, that's an important question. What was the issue? And the issue was as old as the hills. It was the wealth gap between the wealthy and the poor. Those who were wealthy were living a life of luxury. They were very comfortable. They had the finest of all things. It was a time of prosperity in the land, and prosperity in the land meant that the rich were getting richer, but it wasn't trickling down. People were not following the biblical mandates about how to treat the poor. And so Amos was directed to speak against the privileged people of Israel who only looked out for their own concerns. There's something about comfort that leads to complacency. We can get sloppy when we're comfortable, when it comes to a moral standard. And this is what Amos was speaking into. And he repeatedly pointed out the failures of people to fully embrace God's idea of justice. Remember, when we talked about justice and righteousness, we said you can easily follow the law and leave people behind. And they were valuing profit and products over people. They were flying high on their own economic success and the intent of strengthening their financial position. The people had lost the concept of caring for one another, of mutual accountability and responsibility. Let me just give you a little taste of 
these, um, these words attributed to Amos. For thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, seek me and live, but do not seek Bethel and do not enter into Gilgan or cross over to Beersheba, for Gilgan shall, Gilgal shall, <laughs> ah, shall surely go into exile and Bethel shall come to nothing. In other words, don't go to these other regions. They're all worshiping other gods too. It's not going to bode well for them. You can't run from this. Seek the Lord and live, or he will break out against the house of Joseph like fire, and it will devour Bethel with no one to quench it. And you that turn justice to wormwood and bring righteousness to the ground. The Lord who makes destruction flash out against the strong, so that destruction comes upon the fortress. Because you trample on the poor and take from them levies of grain, you have built houses of hewn stone, but you shall not live in them. You have planted pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink their wine. For I know how many are your transgressions and how great are your sins. You who afflict the righteous, who take a bribe and push aside the needy in the gate, Therefore, the prudent will keep silent in such time, for it is an evil time. Seek good and not evil, that you may live. And so the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you, just as you have said. You see, the people thought they were being religious, if you will. And that's why further on in this chapter, which is chapter 5, Amos says, on God's behalf. I hate, I despise your festivals, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them, and the offerings of well-being of your fatted animals I will not look upon. This is a hard one. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the melody of your harps. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Amos is taking inventory from the top shelf to the floor that they're standing on. And the message of Amos has endured. Um, In fact, to just sort of take some of that tension out of the room, if you happen to be feeling any tension, uh, I'm going to share with you now a comic strip evangelist who speaks a very similar message, and maybe this is a voice that makes it easier to hear. Snoopy, many folks are praying for God to heal our land, but I think God's still waiting for people to humble themselves, repent, and turn from their wicked ways. Charles Schultz who used his comic strips to share an important message. In chapter 7 of the book of Amos, he shares a vision of God standing beside a wall with a plumb line in hand, and he's measuring the people against God's standard of justice and righteousness. And I think the essence of what Amos is saying is that there's harm when we don't live up to that standard. 
Here's a poem that speaks to that disparity between the rich and the poor, and it's by Elizabeth Padillo Olesen, a woman of um, Filipino descent. Who draws the gap between people? They call them rich, they call them poor. The rich squander in wealth and abundance, the poor wonder what to eat next time. Who allows injustice as iron fists, smashing down the humble dignity of the weak, elevating the powerful to decide what for the poor is best? Who wakes up in the middle of the night feeling the grumbling, hungry tummy over an open roof and empty plates? Who orders trips to paradise during holidays, hoarding bank shares and silver and gold? Another inventory. Pick a nation, any nation. But I think that, you know, when I heard Amelia welcoming us and saying, you know, if, if you've come looking for joy and looking for comfort, um, I do think there is joy and comfort in this prophecy because there are examples of leaders who are bridging this gap. And I think it's important to say that looking to a government to act first will always lead to desolation. It's always been the people that are called to bring about justice. And oftentimes, it's the most elite that are the last to follow, and they're somehow publicly shamed into it because so many rise up against it. In our country, one of the things, one of the things that we can call this is conscious capitalism. You know, capitalism in and of itself is not sinful. I'm not suggesting or proposing that we become a socialist nation. I know that would get me run out of town. What I am asking is for us to consider capitalism with a conscience not just what the law allows, but examining the effect that it has on all people. So this is a mode of doing business that puts purpose alongside profit. And the purpose is to value all people and all life. In 2016, you may have read the headlines about um, Chobani, the yogurt company, giving employees a financial stake in the company's future. Their CEO, Hamdi U. Lakaya, who is of Middle Eastern descent, uh, gave 10% of the shares that he held in this privately held company to his 2,000 member staff. And he said in that gift and in that press conference, you know, we used to work together, now we are partners. This plant is in upstate New York, if you're not familiar with it. And Yulakaya is outspoken about corporate civic duty. 
10% of Chobani profits go to charity. One third of its workforce is made up of refugees. And employee ownership was always part of Ulakaya's dream plan. He went into this with that vision. I wonder about his social location informing that vision. And in October of 2020, the company further um, lived into this vision by increasing hourly wages that exceeded federal and state minimums. And he said in an interview, this kind of spending is not an expense. These are the best investments you can make for your company. There's another story. It was a CBS News story in September of this year. It was circling back to an earlier news story from six years ago when Dan Price, who is of European descent, um, Dan Price is the CEO of a credit card processing company called Gravity Payments out of Seattle. And what he did was he raised the salary of everyone in the company to $70,000. Every employee who was making less than that was now making $70,000. And he cut his own salary by a million dollars. If you're not familiar with this practice, it's common for CEOs to make about 300 times more than most workers. That's a lot. Now, by some, Dan Price was hailed as a hero, and by his critics, uh, bankruptcy was predicted. He was also called a socialist. That seems to be the, the word that we use when we don't like what's happening, and when people try to think about and consider those who have less in big decisions. Well, the company's thriving. He said his company has tripled, and he's still paying employees $70,000 a year. And he said bigger paychecks have led to fiercely loyal employees. He said the turnover rate was cut in half. So when you have employees staying twice as long, their knowledge of how to help customers improves. And that's really what paid for the raise more than his pay cut. That's what he says. But he also acknowledges what he considers to be an element of failure. And for him, and this is his sort of Amos moment, he says, I feel like I've been shouting from the rooftops, like, this works, this works, everybody should do it. And the bigger companies aren't really following suit. I mean, we're seeing increases in minimum wages that exceed federal and state guidelines, but we're not seeing these radical um, adjustments. But here's what's important about this story and why I'm sharing this one. Because it didn't start with a decision 
to increase wages to $70,000. It started with him being called out by an employee who was making $32,000 a year. And the employee said to him, you're ripping me off. What? What do you mean? I'm paying you fair market value. You're ripping me off and you know it. I'm just as smart as naming other people and I'm making far less. And this honest exchange really bothered Dan. It got under his skin. Because, you know, he thought he was a good guy, doing the right thing, paying market value, living the life. He's an entrepreneur. It ate away at him. And he finally had to admit that the employee who called him out was right. And this was a couple years later. It didn't happen immediately. So there's hope for all of us here, right? If at first the message doesn't sound like something we should be hearing or want to hear, give it time, because it's going to work on you. I love this quote. He said, as he was going through this conversion, if you will, Most people live paycheck to paycheck, so how come I need 10 years of living expenses and you don't? Oof. Now, I know I see some people looking at each other, and Beth and I just had this conversation last night. You know, how much is enough? Are you sure we can afford this? I know moving into some facilities require that you have X amount of dollars. It's for their benefit. So initially, he increased wages 20%, and he did that for a couple years. And then it went to 70,000 for each one. So there's something about taking that first step and seeing that you can live through it (laughs) that allows you to take that next step and live through that, and then that next step and live through that. And I think this story speaks well to the power of what is possible. And that's, for me, where the hope, the comfort, and the joy are. Because our happiness is connected to the happiness of others. Not just the ease of the moment. Not just the comfort of the moment. But real happiness and real joy, and a real sense of belonging. And this is very different than a handout or a program designed to help the poor. These programs that we typically participate in, and they are are important until we get to that next place. They continue a cycle of dependency. Those who have, are asked to give, those who don't will receive, the givers feel good, the receivers, I don't know. Nobody likes, most people don't like to be on the receiving end. But there's gratitude expressed. I mean, think of your own circumstances. I've, many of us have had this conversation. I'd rather give than ask for help. 
I'm more comfortable giving than receiving. And I remember Carol's words after the rummage sale. Her dream is that one day we won't need a rummage sale. Yes, we won't need a rummage sale. We won't need crop walk. We won't need holiday food bags. But now we do, and there's more. So these programs are important, and they teach generosity on the family level and at all levels, and they're important, but they're not the answer, so let's not confuse it. Let's not confuse it with the standard of justice that Amos is calling us to, that God is calling us to, and asking us to participate in. Is everybody okay? It's not an easy word. It's meant to get inside us and cause us to think about it. And it speaks well. It speaks really well to a new chapter in church ministry that Amelia and I have been noticing and talking about. And it's an emphasis on community organizing. It's not a new concept. But for some churches, it's a new concept because churches are used to starting initiatives and working within a denomination. And this is a multi-denomination, non-denomination effort, working with other congregations and community groups to bridge the gap. In other words, banding together to listen to the voices of struggle and frustration and despair and, in a word, injustice to listen, to notice. I know you already care. And this is something we can do together. And we use our collective power to influence change. One more piece, just one more piece about Amos. Amos didn't regard himself as a prophet. When the religious elite tried to run him out of town, he said, I'm not a prophet. I'm a shepherd and a dresser of sycamore trees. I had to look that last part out. A dresser of sycamore trees? Apparently, that's the fig tree of the poor. And a dresser of sycamore trees has to prick the skin of the fruit to help the ripening process. Could you imagine that job, how tedious that job would be? Amos was poor. Now I understand why God thundered and roared. We've gotten very uncomfortable with poor people thundering and roaring but it's a legitimate tone. Imagine the frustration, the pain, the despair. He was poor, and he was sent by God to call the people to account. So who's calling us to account today? And how can we influence 
practices that disrupt the wealth gap and the cycle of dependency. That's what we need to do, isn't it? To disrupt that gap and the, and the cycle of dependency. And let's hold these questions gently as we transition into a time of prayer that's going to be held in song. We're gonna start with a song. We're going to enter into a time of silence. And then we're going to conclude our time of prayer with a song that the choir is going to lead first and then we'll join in. So just be aware of how that's gonna unfold. But most importantly, let's see what the Spirit will do.